We talk a lot on this podcast about chess improvement, but when it comes to improving your hiring processes, Indeed is the platform you need. Indeed has over 350 million global monthly visitors, and it has a matching engine that helps you find quality work candidates fast. You can use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with your candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree that Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Years ago, when I was running a chess teaching business, I found it hard to find good help, and I had to go through a lot of back and forth to even screen potential candidates. Indeed allows you to do those things efficiently in one place. Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed for hiring, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of Perpetual Chess will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility if you go to Indeed.com slash chess. Just go to Indeed.com slash chess right now, and you'll be supporting our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast, Indeed.com slash chess. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Now streaming only on Disney Plus. My name is Taylor. Welcome to the Eras Tour. Experience Taylor Swift's record-breaking Eras Tour. We do, we do, Does anyone here know the lyrics? Prove it! Taylor Swift, the Eras Tour, Taylor's version. With four additional acoustic songs. Now streaming only on Disney+. Plus. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Chess Books Recaptured. Yes, we are finally back with another book recap. It took a few months because, well, there's many reasons. We're busy people, but also we're discussing a 443-page, or it might be 433, classic book. I am Jeremy Somans, the amateur's mind, of course. Uh, This legendary author is recently departed from the living world, sadly. Um, I'll be doing a lot of Jeremy Soman-related content coming up. Um, depending on when you listen to this, there's an interview coming together with his friends. I am John Donaldson and I am Cyrus Lakdawalla, just remembering his legacy. I am Donaldson in particular um, has been near, nearly best friends with him for 40 years or something. So it really goes through his whole life and his whole legacy and tells some funny stories, of course. Uh, very touching interview coming your way. I also will be sharing... Uh, two old interviews from Fred Wilson. This is Fred Wilson, of course, of Fred Wilson Books in New York City. Uh, Longtime listeners might recall that Fred had an interview show with the Internet Chess Club around the mid-2000s. And for a while, I, he was licensing those interviews for me to share with Patreon subs. The ownership has reverted to Fred, but in the wake of I Am Soman's passing, Fred graciously has allowed me to post them. So they're audio only. The sound is a little grainy, but I'll be editing those and posting them as audio only to the Perpetual Chess YouTube because there's actually not that much Jerry, Jeremy Soman content of him actually just speaking extemporaneously online. And 
I've listened to these interviews. They're fantastic. So I'll be posting those. Um, they may not be up when this interview comes out, but they'll be up by the end of December, and I will link to them whenever they are. They shouldn't be hard to find on the Perpetual Chess YouTube channel. Last item of housekeeping. Of course, I'd like to th- thank our presenting chess education sponsors, chessable.com. Um, little backstory about... <clears throat> I am Jeremy Silman's uh, legacy and Chessable. Obviously, people like Geert Vandervelt, the CEO of Chessable, is a huge fan of Silman's work. It was formative for him, as it has been for so many others. But for a while, Silman didn't want to put his catalog on Chessable. So that's why it's only recently... um, appeared. And that's why in my book, Perpetual Chess Improvement, as I extol the virtues of Silman's complete endgame course, I was saying there's no digital playthrough version. But I wrote that in 2022 and 2023. Little did I know that it would be coming and, of course, is now available from Chessable presented by I am Alex Bonzea. Um, uh, Silman's other classic complete um, How to Reassess Your Chess is coming imminently presented by GM Maurice Ashley. It might be out by the time you hear this. As for the book we're going to discuss, Amateur's Mind, it's coming in early 2024. So if you've waited this long to read this book, I think you can hold out a little longer and get it on Chessable if that's how you prefer to consume your material. So as for the actual book review, helping me out for this book review, I have David Ham. David is a 44-year-old chess enthusiast who started playing in 2022, recently joined Chess Dojo, and is working hard on his game. He's based in the Denver area and is VP Deputy General Counsel for a Colorado-based company. He's also a securities law adjunct professor at several law schools, a father at three, husband of 21 years, super busy guy. So I'm, I'm very grateful that he took the time to read this classic but long book. And David, welcome and thanks for helping out. Yeah, glad to be here, Ben. Thanks for having me. It was a lot of fun. Yeah, yeah. I'm super excited to chat about this book, obviously, Silman, an absolute legend. And it's been fun. This was a gap in my Silman reading. Uh, there's actually still a few I need to plug. I mainly, I of course, did a podcast several years ago about how to reassess your chess that listeners can find, and a big fan of his columns on chess.com. Um, although I haven't read them all. There's something like 481 of them. So I've actually been revisiting those a little bit <clears throat> as well. And but they're this long. Book, I, I think they're, they're long. pretty long. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> they're as books. You, yeah, you pointed me to, so Dojo Talks also did a yeah. Jeremy Selman tribute and in it, David Pruso, who, of course, worked for Chess.com in the early years, uh, gives some color about that and basically yeah. said that Silman, um, he he took them very seriously. He wasn't doing them for the money. He's been quite successful in recent years. Um, and he he obviously treated them with tender, loving care. And as you say, they're very, very long, very detailed. Some of them function like as lessons. Others are more sort of like memoirish, but definitely recommend listeners check those out as well. Um, so in terms of the amateur's mind, uh, David, before we dive into it, could you, uh, tell our listeners a bit more about your chess background in particular? Yeah, sure. So it's a pretty short background. I started in 2022 and I was actually, uh, I was in really into archery and one of my buddies I met at the range was also really into archery, but I was also into chess. He was the, in his range, the Colorado chess champion. And he said, hey, I'm going over to this weekend tournament. Come with me. I didn't know how to annotate. I didn't know how to use a clock. And I just went to the tournament and got destroyed by, I think my first kid who destroyed me was in fifth grade. Uh, But for some reason, just fell in love with the game 
And um, he was a huge Silman guy. And so I, I, I have like 20 chess books, Ben, not as big as your bookshelf, but I have, here's my first Silman book. Okay. Uh, the complete book of chess. Here's how to reassess your chess. Your favorite, mine as well, the end game manual. But I didn't have, I didn't have the one we're going to talk about. But out of 20 books, I have four Selman books. Wow. <laughs> so it was very influential to my friend Dan. And so uh, he was, he's always been a bit of uh, what I first read. And so that's how I got into it. Yeah, that makes sense. And it's not surprising because similar to me, like, I came up kind of when Silman, before his books really blew up, like my formative years where I was reaching, you know, I was 2200 by, you know, 1995. So Silman's books like didn't really take off until after 1995. So I would have learned a ton from them, but kind of the timelines didn't completely line up. But I still read his books and became a big fan of his um, over the years, but it's been kind of subsequent while I'm doing this podcast. Now, I actually asked John Donaldson about this because in reading his obits, um, uh, there were two particularly good obits. Uh, F.M. Dylan McLean wrote one for the New York Times where he obviously talked to uh, Selman's wife, uh, Gwen Feldman, and got a lot of background about Selman's life. And of course, Tarje Svensson of Chess.com also um, interviewed a lot of people from the chess world. So I'll link to those in case anyone missed those. But in those articles, they mentioned that the the strategy guide was actually one of his best-selling books, selling over 100,000 copies. That one, I don't feel like in the here in the 2020s, gets name-checked as much as How to Reassess Your Chess or The Endgame Guide. So my, my question for you, David, before we get to Amateur's Mind is, has that book merely been like a shelf decoration or have you no, checked it out? I, I read every page. And, you know, it was, I had been playing chess for all of like two weeks <laughs> and I got this book. And so it was helpful because it, it explained a ton of concepts. It's like, you know, this much depth on pretty much, you know, a thousand topics. Um, and so it was pretty helpful. I'd say it was a lot, you know, just to kind of read through it. I, I was doing on my train commute, flipping through it on my phone and, um, but it was helpful. Okay. Um, yeah, I, I don't know if I'll get to that one because he's got a couple other books that I haven't read that are like gaping holes. Like he 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 wrote a biography of uh, Pal Benko that he discusses in some detail um, or co-wrote with Pal Benko in the Fred Wilson interview. And uh, John Donaldson said, and as listeners can hear when the interview comes out, that that's what he thinks is his greatest work. And Selman sort of talks about it uh, pridefully saying like he just wanted to show what how good a chess biography could be how interesting it could be he knew he wasn't going to make any money from it but it was a real passion project so i want to check that out and of course he came out with a memoir in recent years as you'll hear john discuss uh it hasn't been widely reported but Silman's health issues have been quite severe in the past few years i think that's why he stopped doing the chess.com column and for that reason i think that the book may have been pushed out like not quite as finished as i am Silman would have liked the the most recent Silman's Odyssey, um, but I still would like to read it because the, the, it's one of those. He's a personality where the 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 deeper I dig, the more interested I get. Um, so before we get one more thing before we dive into the amateur's mind, I just thought for listeners less familiar with his legacy, it might be helpful to briefly go through Selman's bio. And again, if you do listen to the interviews with Donaldson and Lakdawalla, this comes together sort of piecemeal. But just to give you sort of a quick um, linear biography of uh, Selman's life. Again, this is from those two obits primarily. He was born in Texas. 
grew up there, Michigan, France, and San Diego. His father was in the military, so he moved around a bunch. Uh, Silman discovered chess at age 12. He described his high school years in the interview with uh, Fred Wilson by saying, quote, I was fat and I had no friends and would often skip school and review hundreds of master chess games. So he estimated at some point that he'd reviewed something like 100,000 master chess games. And I think that's what framed his incredible positional understanding. Um, he he um, became obviously a very strong player, won tournaments like the U.S. Open, the American Open, the National Open, um, probably GM strength, but never earned the GM title. It was pretty tough to do it in the U.S. in those days. Uh, so when he finished high school, he briefly joined the military, but he uh, asked to be um, honorably discharged after three months. He just didn't feel like it was a fit. Um, and he was honorably discharged. He moved to San Francisco shortly thereafter. So, of course, he's written uh, about his hippie years in Haight-Asbury in San Francisco. Um, one thing I did want to mention, and you'll again hear this in the interview with I am John Donaldson and Cyrus Lakdawalla, is Cyrus had said that he was a heroin addict, a homeless heroin addict. And it turns out that Selman was joking when he told uh, Lakdawalla that. So he was sort of homeless at times. But he was never into hard drugs, you'll hear John say. So did want to correct that. Um, but obviously, then his legacy really takes off once he starts to churn out the chess books. I'm probably the best-selling chess author of all time, over 600,000 copies in total. Very relatable style, uh, really understood the uh, amateur's plight. Um, so a rags to riches story within his life. He self-pub, not self-published because his wife was a publisher, but the um, the printing, the, all of his books were ultimately either published or ownership transferred to he and his wife. So when you sell 600,000 books and you own the rights to them, you end up doing pretty well, which is uh, what ultimately happened. So sadly, he died at the age of 69 as as a result of uh, health struggles resulting from a stroke. He actually, in his later years, as John discusses, uh, suffered from dementia. John described it as the same illness that the actor Bruce Willis is currently battling. So I think the last few years were tough for Silman and his clo those close to him. Um, and obviously a staggering loss for the chess community, but a good chance, a good excuse to appreciate the many, many words that he had left behind, including uh, the amateur's mind. So what were your first impressions of uh, of reading this book, David? Yeah, I think he's just a fantastic author. He's hilarious. You know, so it's a conversation. I guess it's kind of like thinking like a GM, except, you know, at a different caliber where you'll have, you know, a, a weak player like myself, then a little stronger player, and then Silman. And one of my favorite things was just how he would, um, you know, he'd let one of his students go on and on and on. And his first word was just horrible. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> and it, was just, it was just so great. I mean, so it, he made it really entertaining. Um, and it was, you know, the imbalances are his big thing. And I think he articulated them a little differently in Reassess Your Chest than here. I thought a little bit more simply and concise here. But, um, you know, I think there's, there's so many concepts that I can't hold them all in my head when I'm playing. But there are pieces here and there. Uh, that do come up in my games from time to time. But I'd say my first impression was it's just a lot of fun to read uh, yeah, and very, that, very instructive. Yeah, he's a fantastic writer. That's the main thing. And we'll we'll yeah. get to our overall impressions uh, shortly, but just to, to provide a bit more context. So, David, you're around 1,400, 1,500 Lee Chess. Is that correct? Uh, it, yeah, well, in uh, classical 1570, something like that, uh, which is the, the, I think you said the generous numbers. 
Right. Yeah. <laughs> Probably subtract about 300 to get to chess.com or USCF, yeah. usually something like that. Um, and that gets to the level of the book, um, which it was. So again, I had the, I thought I had this on my shelf. I think I lost it at some point. So I got another one. Um, but I, I had it in my mind as this because it's called the amateur's mind and because I knew that how to reassess your chess, you know, that could take you up to the master level. Uh, someone like I am Sagra Shah from Chess Base India and even Cyrus Lakdawala in the interview you guys will hear talks about how it took him from 25 to 2600. So how to reassess your chess, even though it's written in a very accessible style, has some advanced material. And this one is slightly more accessible, but it's still reasonably it's it's reasonably advanced material. Um, friend of the pod, Nick Weissel, also recently wrote a review of uh, Amateur's Mind, and I think he pegged the rating range at about 1,200 to 1,800. Did you feel like you were drowning when you read the chess, David? I felt like some concepts were accessible. Like I said, there are a lot of concepts. Um, and there were some things where, you know, let's say a 2,000 player was seeing things that I didn't have any idea we're there, <laughs> you know, so I wouldn't say I was drowning, but there were some things that I couldn't were not accessible to me for sure. Yeah. Um, yeah, that sounds about right. And of course, it's going to work that way because of the unique structure of the book. I mean, Silman sort of moved the ball forward in so many domains in chess writing, one of them being the what you described, where he would just say, like, this is horrible, this is awful, you know. Um, where's the cattle prod? Where, yeah, where's the cattle prod for, for prodding his student? <laughs> like, yeah, he just held nothing back. And it was just so refreshing. I mean, even reading it today, you know, as someone who's recently written a book, it's just sometimes you take a step back and you're like, wait, you can write that way? You know, you can just say that? Um, and <laughs> it's uh these yeah, are students who are paying him you know right <laughs> yeah it's it's quite quite inspiring um so i i certainly enjoyed that aspect but your point david about uh there being a lot in there is also valid like he there's so many pages and there's so much material and there's so many rules and guidelines that i do sort of get get the sense that um that maybe <clears throat> maybe there's it's not the first choice for an instructive book, but it's very pleasurable to read. Yeah, yeah I agree. And, and, you know, one thing that I found when you have so many things, when you're a, a kind of a beginner like me and you're playing a 90 plus 30, let's say, it, it's like, I'm not sure what to do with all that time. <laughs> you right. know, like you, you guys, you get your tw 2000 master, you know, title players, you've got a lot going on where I'm like, eh, let's see right. a couple of things, whatever. So it helps give a framework to spend the time to when you really have it. And, and that's been helpful as well when I've been playing longer games. Yeah. And getting back to the structure of the book. So one of his unique uh, insights was the book is framed around Grandmaster or his positions or certain instructive positions where he shows maybe a correct way to play it or a way a master played it that worked well. And then he'll give it to two or three of his students uh, to play it. And they'll share their thought processes and he'll kind of deconstruct uh, their thought processes in his inimitable way. So that's where the title, The Amateur's Mind, comes from, because he really does try to um, he really does try to notice the thought patterns that a typical chess player has. And I mean, that's obviously, again, what what really differentiated him, especially going back to the 1990s from how people wrote. But even today, I mean, he's still pretty one of a kind. Yeah, what my favorite setup of a student was, and he would he would kind of sometimes set him up for failure. He'd say one of his my favorite ones was he said, 
I gave him lessons on this, but as soon as I was sure he forgot everything I taught him, right. I gave him this position. <laughs> it's yeah. just so good. Which, yeah, and it's it's very valid because, yeah. you know, I've certainly, as both teacher and student, like I've had, I've been both where I forget the material and where I see the student forget the material that we've talked about. Um, so the book is divided into 12 chapters, as David said, a lot of it's centered around his, um, his concept of imbalances. Um, the chapters are generally about 25 pages each. I like that there's bullet point tips at the end of each chapter. Again, stuff like that, you know, in the 1990s, when he was first coming out with these books, uh, you didn't see very often. Uh, there's problems at the end of each chapter, and then a big uh, problem section at the end. Um, and then, of course, there's so w- there's a couple critiques of Selman that come up a lot. One is like obviously this book is very old, so there's going to be some analytical errors in it. Um, David, I'm guessing like we did. You graciously created a Lee Chess study that made this easier to follow. Did you have the engine on when you were playing through it? I didn't. The dojo is very anti-engine, and so okay. I'm trying to be anti-engine as well. But no, I, I didn't catch the errors. Okay, good for you. Yeah, I didn't have it on that much. And I'm not, you know, I am Donaldson in our interview addresses this too. I don't think it's particularly valid. Jesse Cry is also always pounding the table that you want to learn how to think, you know, so it doesn't do you any good to turn on the engine and say, well, this was wrong. And this was wrong, because he's sharing thought processes, both of himself and of the amateurs. And, you know, obviously a player of Selman's stature, like if you can if you can learn to think like him, that's that's good enough for most of us, you know. <laughs> yeah. cer- certainly, uh, good enough for me. So there's that critique, and then there's also, as I alluded to briefly before, the common critique that um, maybe there's like there's so many words and so many guidelines that maybe it's a bit information overload, or it might be a bit of a thing where it's you know it's not actionable the the book and i do think there's a little more merit to that so uh like neil bruce a friend of the pod obviously um you know he when nick weisel was polling people about amateur's mind as he wrote about in his book review neil chimed in and said you know it's a fun book it's an enjoyable book but if your goal is uh strictly chess improvement and improving your positional understanding he recommends stuff like yasser's uh winning chess strategies and michael steen's simple chess and books like that um, I even would throw in Johan Helston's uh, Mastering Chess Strategy, although that's more advanced. There's also like techniques of positional play. So there are other options to work on your positional play. And I think it's reasonable to critique Selman in that regard. But there are people who swear by Selman, as you, like your friend. Um, and it's so much more fun to read than a lot of those books that I think it's a reasonable critique, but people should form their own judgment. Yeah, no, that's fair. We'll be right back with more discussion of the classic book, The Amateur's Mind. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, price line. 
Find a fresh take on a fall getaway to Wilmington, North Carolina and beaches. Enjoy hiking trails in a state park, fresh seafood with a sight of live music and fall festivals galore. Then live it up along the Riverwalk in Wilmington's historic downtown with three island beaches, Carolina, Curie and Wrightsville and a vibrant downtown. You get the best of the Carolina coast all in one place. Plan your fall getaway at Wilmington and Beaches Vacation.com. How do you make a vacation last? How do you hold on to the joy, the clarity, the calm? Easy. You go to Aruba. You'll spend your time relaxing on cool, white, sandy beaches and floating in healing blue water. You'll meet locals brimming with gratitude for an island that redefines what a paradise can be. You won't just feel great. You'll feel relaxed, renewed, and ready for life. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your trip at aruba.com. And we are back. So, yeah, my overall assessment is it's just really fun to read the book. Um, so, yeah, maybe not the first choice of what I would read. But uh, if, I, if, my, if I were only trying to optimize my improvement time and I were a 1400 player, maybe I wouldn't go to it first. And it's also so long that it's like a big endeavor to tackle it. So I think it's fine to just have around and check it out from time to time. And again, since it's coming to Chessable, you can even wait for that. But to set the stage, I thought I would read the opening two paragraphs um, of the book, which I will dive in right here. <clears throat> I, so this is all a quote. Every chess student dreams of finding the perfect teacher, someone who magically knows what's going on in the student's mind and is able to surgically remove the flaws contained there. Unfortunately, this rarely happens in reality. The well-meaning master, not being a movie character or a psychic, thinks it's sufficient to look at the student's games, ask questions, and give pat answers to the problems that appear before his eyes. While this is a good technique, I often wondered what would happen if a teacher could really get inside the student's head. To accomplish this, I played games with my students, always starting them off with a good position, had them talk out loud before they made a move, and after I made mine and wrote down their thoughts, to my amazement, I was soon seeing problems that I never imagined they possessed. And even when I was clipping those two paragraphs, it's like I wanted to keep going. Exactly. Know? Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, so, he hooks you from the beginning for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, his writing really stands out throughout the book, probably even more so um, than his chess instruction. And again, not to not to belabor the point, but as far as I know, this was just so revolutionary, this idea. Um, and he really it comes across in his interviews with Fred Wilson as well. He was spending a lot of time about thinking about how to present his content away from doing it. You know, he talks, and I mentioned this in the interview with John Donaldson as well. He talked about how he knew when he was writing uh, someone's complete endgame course that there was nothing remotely resembling it on the marketplace. You know, that, and, and he, all, one of the reasons that he ultimately decided to publish his own books, as Donaldson discusses, is because he was so fastidious about wanting to get every detail right, about not needing to meet a specific deadline during the interview with Fred Wilson. Um, it's the first interviews in 2005. He hasn't quite finished the book and he's like, oh, this is taking forever, but I want, I think it's good and I want to do it right. And then in 2006, I believe he said that they were just now doing the typesetting. Um, but it really does show, it comes across in the works, I would say. Yeah, I mean, you can tell he loves writing. And, yeah. what he, and loves what he's writing about. And that it's contagious for the reader. 
Yeah, and there's there's like a life lesson in there because um, as again comes across in these conversations, I mean, he was really living hand to mouth for many years, but pursuing what he loved and pursuing it with such vigor and originality that ultimately sort of his talent won out, you know? So um, especially again, you know, obviously I had a ton of respect for him anyway, but you kind of, for unfortunately often only really try to conceptualize someone's life after they've passed and you really kind of look back on it. And in looking back on it, uh, obviously there's so much to admire just from his, all the lessons that he left behind, but also the way he lived his life is inspiring. Yeah, I think, you know, the Dojo Talks did a really good job. I think Jesse did a good job of bringing us back to his lean days in the 90s when there was no money in chess. And yeah. he, was, he figured out how to make it work somehow, which is, you know, to your point, pretty remarkable. Um, yeah, he, so I would definitely recommend listeners do check out that that Dojo Talks because, yeah, Jesse had some good perspective. And David, of course, told some good stories about uh, all of... Uh, the behind the scenes of uh, Selman writing for chess.com um, for all, for all those years. So, I mean, we've, we've, of course, like with Selman, I feel like the main thing is the quotes, you yeah. know, especially because, I mean, obviously we could, we could share chess lessons, chess takeaways. Um, I would say the main chess takeaway that i like the, the top line chess takeaway is like you are not alone. You know, mm. you have these thought patterns as mm. whatever level player, you know, definitely up to my level, there's still a lot of what he says resonates. And you feel like all these insecurities and these like thought loops that you find yourself in, you might feel like they're distinct, they're like only you, like this fear of being attacked or this propensity to always want to attack. Two of the sort of proclivities of amateurs that that Silman's often sort of harping on. But when you read the books, you you kind of realize, and of course this makes sense from a sort of Darwinian perspective, that everyone feels that way. Um, yeah. And he's very helpful about repeatedly hammering it on you and pointing it out <laughs> in like a funny way. So yeah. um, so it it's it's a lot of fun to read. Yeah, I think my my big takeaway, I think that's a really good one. Um, but two, like how prevalent throughout the whole book, the mental game, you know, the, yeah. the, the, not the technical, I mean, he, the technical stuff was there, but permeating all of it was, you know, don't play with courage. Don't, right. don't play with fear. Like, what do you have to fear? Nobody cares if you win or lose this game. Like right. what, what you don't get outside of your head and, and play a, a good chess. And um, to me, that was it was such a point over and over and over again. Like sometimes you'd say, let's just take a paragraph and talk about fear, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And it, it was just, I really appreciated that. Um, I, I played division one college golf in, in college. And that was my big thing was mental. Like if I was winning, I got nervous. If I was, you know, doing bad, I got nervous. And so, you know, thinking about how to really work on that in my chess game, cause it shows up in chess too, um, was really helpful. Wow archery golf and chess you've got the like trifecta of the the, the mind the, the, mind the random <laughs> the random things to do with your time this is where <laughs> i excel <laughs> that's one how way to, to put how it how to waste how to whittle away your time by david ham i i think it's uh forthcoming then maybe on chessable in a couple of years <laughs> that's one way to put it but those games are also like supremely psychological yeah i mean yeah. There, there's definitely like a through line between like man can you get in your own head in those three activities oh there, there's no doubt there's no doubt there and a lot of all a lot of fun archery particularly is just fascinating a really interesting sport. I, but anyway. i've never i've never done archery but i did read the book zen and the art of archery is have you yeah have you read yeah that? That, 
it, if you if you have a range anyway, we we can get off this topic. But it's uh, you know it's like you try not to get to poker sometimes. But it's it is it's a lot of fun. Um, yeah. Anyway. I, I could see that. Um, so getting back to the chapters, I, the one that David alluded to about the mental game is the last chapter called Developing Mental Toughness. I've definitely heard many people flag that as a favorite. But before we get to our favorite quotes, which is really the main event for Selman, um, I did just want to read the chapter titles just to give listeners a quick perspective about what the topics of the book are about. Although I would guess with someone like Selman, probably half half of you listening have read the book at least, whereas normally it might be more like 10 to 20%. But so there's an introduction, chapter one, the imbalances. He in- introduces the concept. Chapter two, the battle between bishops and knights. Chapter three, acquisition of the center of territory and space. Chapter four, the confusing subject of pawn structure. Just as a brief aside, see, like that's a thing where in 1990, no one, people would just say pawn structure and yeah. be very like proper about it instead right. of like telling you, yes, it's confusing. Yeah. Um, next chapter, material. Next chapter, development and initiative. Next chapter, many imbalances, one board, how to play the opening, using the rooks, the curse of the mindless king hunter. I love that chapter <laughs> That was title. such a good, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Which, yeah. Uh, which side of the board should you play on? That's also very instructive. And developing mental t- toughness. And then the tests, which come with like 100 pages of extra material it's as it amazing. goes through the answers Intimidating. to the test. Yeah. yeah. Um, so let's get to the quotes. So David and I, what we did is we, we obviously coordinated on doing this pod overall, but for the five quotes, we didn't share them with each other. And we're going to count from our favorite to our fifth favorite and see if there's any overlap. Obviously it's a 400 page book, but bringing it back to our friend, Nick Weisel, uh, in his review, he has like, first thing he does is he has like a page and a half of his favorite quotes, because that's what, you know, that's what really resonates when you end up, uh, reading uh Selman. So David, you being the guest, I will let you go first. What was your favorite quote? Favorite quote. Book? Okay. This is this is when so he bashes grandmasters and his students alike. No no one is safe. And this quote was one of my favorites where um Roxy had had made just a, a complete bonehead move. Um one something I would do and he said, Why did an experienced grandmaster like Maroxy make such a mistake? To answer that We'd have to know what he drank before the game. <laughs> Demonic possession is another theory. <laughs> it's just, just so good. I mean, I, I just, I remember just laughing out loud uh, when yeah. I when I read that passage. It's just like, man, he's going hard. At, yeah, Maroxy, you know? yeah. <laughs> Demonic that whole, possession, man. That's 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 something. <laughs> yeah, that that whole sideline definitely cracked me up because mm-hmm. he's showing like an instruction, instructive example of this Alyekin uh, Maroxy game where Alyekin, it's a Carlsbad structure. Now Alyekin just thrashes him, um, and uh, you know Maroxy plays like it's one of these positions where you have pawns on e6 and d5, and then Maroxy plays f5, so he creates this massive hole on the e5 square. Um, and gets like, you know, Alyekin rips open the center and just like crushes him. But it just seems kind of unfair. This like hundred year old grandmaster, he just grabs his game. And yeah, he has a line like what a pathetic display by Maroxy when the game's over. It's just like. He was drunk and demon possessed. Yeah. I believe they call that catching a stray. I mean, what Maroxy's just, you know, he's just some dead chess player. Why why are you lambasting him? He's indiscriminate uh, in his bashing. That's that's for sure. There's no one, nothing sacred. Yeah. And I mean, and it shows sort of like um, a fearlessness, you know, because 
um, that can be difficult. I mean, Silman obviously, you know, quite accomplished, but still like Maroxi is also like, especially in those days, um, you know, compared to Silman, he's a legend and like to just take apart uh, him with such fury when it's not even like that, that central to the book. But right. I LOL'd when I read that too. And yeah, that was a tough cut for me. I think I cut it. I think I have something else related to that story. Um coming as my number two quote, just to spoil it. But my number one quote is, this is from page 49. The question must be asked, will white allow such a mate on the light squares? Can black force it? Naturally, white will do everything in his power to prevent this one move knockout. 1700, so often with his students, he just refers to them by their rating. 1700 must make the following adjustments in his thinking processes if he wants to improve his playing strength. One, always expect the opponent to see your threats. Two, always expect him to make the best move. When you find yourself crossing your fingers and hoping that he won't see it, you're making a big mental mistake and embracing very bad mental habits. Three, playing for a tactical shot is fine if you can force it. If not, take your time, keep your eyes on the tactics, get the rest of your army into the battle, and pay lots of attention to the positional features of the board. You're never going to go anywhere if you can't blend positional and tactical considerations together. So I picked that one over a lot of his funnier quotes because I felt like it was a very sort of succinct representation of his advice and his philosophy. No, that's a good one. Okay, so my the first one, if you want to go to the Maroxy Bash, that was on page 280. I didn't call that out. <clears throat> this is a longer one. It's on page 299 to 300. So uh, apologies in advance, but I think it's about the same length as yours, Ben. So this one struck out to me because it's it's where I struggle. Uh, and so it really uh, was meaningful. It says that since chess is largely a game of psychology, you must believe in yourself if you're going to have any hope of achieving good results. As soon as doubts enter into the equation, the moves come more slowly. A tendency towards passivity raises its ugly head and you find yourself entertaining destructive thoughts concerning horrible things often imaginary, that your opponent is going to do to you. To illustrate how strong a part attitude plays, let's compare two of my students. Student number one is 10 years old and knows very little about the game. He has no positional understanding at all, plays the opening very poorly, and thinks the end game is an entirely different sport. <laughs> With a style geared only for making attacks, one would think he would do poorly. But it turns out that he owns a 1900 rating and often beats players hundreds of points higher than himself. His success is made possible by an overwhelming desire to win every game. When he plays a move, you know it has some mean intention behind it. Student number two is 50 years old and possesses the possessional understanding of an expert, a solid opening repertoire, and a fair uh, knowledge of the end game. Superior in almost every respect to student number one, he has only a rating of 1500. The reason? He lacks confidence and is too quick to give up on his plans in the face of imaginary threats. I, I just thought that diagnosis was just <laughs> too personal on the ladder, <laughs> right. but just right on. I mean, I, it was pretty amazing. Amazingly, that was one of my quotes. <laughs> oh, no, I'm sorry. I stole it from you. Stole <laughs> no, no, you, but that's that speaks volumes. I mean, it's amazing. We're talking about, uh, you know, a 400 page book and that, you know, resonated above all with both of us, because in addition to the point that, that what you said, like 
it speaks to people. It also, I felt like, was quite ahead of its time because now when you listen to like all of my interviews, um, you know, in the interview with Donaldson and Lakdawalla, they go on like a five minute tangent about how strong kids are today. Yeah. Um, and, and that's sort of their hallmark is this fearlessness and this sort of um, skill over knowledge, basically, the ability to sort of just um, let it fly and play good moves as opposed to sort of like no more things, but, but, get stuck in recurring thought patterns. So because it because it hit that so succinctly, I had highlighted that as well. And of course, uh, that one also, I believe is, yeah, that's also from the mental toughness chapter. So uh, brings home the point that that is like, you know, you could pick it up and only read that chapter and it's worth the uh, 25 bucks or whatever. 100% agree. And like I said, he sprinkles that chapter throughout all the rest of the book. <laughs> so yeah. it's, it's a huge theme. Yeah. And actually, my number two quote is also from that chapter. And it's also related, as I said, to the Alyek and Maroxi snippet. So after he, um, you know, rips Maroxi a new one for his <laughs> poor play a hundred years ago, um, he then gives the position to his students who don't do much better. And um, in one of them, he's going through it move by move. And his student starts out well and then kind of loses the thread. So he's talking about like what would happen from there. And he writes, the next stage of this game is to panic and live in the past. I know because I've done it several hundred times in my career. Now he's thinking about all the things he should he should have done earlier in the game. And that's another thought pattern that, you know, obviously we all, we all can relate to. Oh, yeah. No, that's a good one. I remember that. Um, my my next one is short, and it's actually not unique to this book. He he sprinkles it through a lot of his works, but it's a uh, on page ninety seven. Just a really, it's one of the things that sticks out when I'm playing. Uh, so I thought it was worth reading. He said, "You should always be able to list the great things your moves do for your position." And I, I have a tendency to be somewhat lazy, where you know, oh, this this move, that'll eh, be good enough, you know, and and. Um, this pops into my mind once in a while as like my little angel on my shoulder to say, what is it? What wonderful things does this do for your position and checks me uh, yeah. periodically. So I think it's a really helpful short quote. Yeah, I, I agree with you that it is, but that also gets back to sort of the Selman critique that again, I think has some uh, merit, which is just, there's so many little yeah. useful um, heuristics that, um, that, it can be, you know, over, you can't remember them all. Yeah. And it gets to this debate that took place when I am Willie Hendricks and move first, think later kind of critiqued Selman um, on that basis saying like when strong players think um, they think, you know, they think in moves first and words later. Um, Selman actually, and uh, someone linked to this in Nick's review. I apologize. I forget whose name it was, but um, Selman actually wrote a response to this in which I thought he was very uh, eloquent and uh, made a lot of sense. But basically, he just said, like, look, that's true. And that's how I think, too. But um, but I'm trying to help players who haven't gone through 100,000 master games. Yeah. Um, so I'm trying to give them some rule of thumb. And it's not really practical for a working adult to then just go go through 100,000 games like that's not going to happen. So he kind of conceded the point and he was actually very gracious. He he praised uh, I am Willie Hendricks book uh, in the in the context of responding to this criticism. Um, so anyway, I do think there's there's a getting to Neil Bruce recommending those other books um, and this whole debate. There is something to be said for a need to be concrete when you're thinking in a chess game. 
Um, but on the other hand, it's enjoyable to remember this advice and the one you just described. It's certainly good advice, you know, that like if you're not asking yourself what uh, what good a move does for your position, you're doing yourself a disservice. On the other hand, the whole like when you look at a position first, list all the imbalances as he advises. Yeah, that's one. In my humble opinion, he might yeah. be taking it like a bit too I, far. It's just I, a bit I, impractical. I agree, and I, I think you could take that question, like what good is this doing for your position, without having to go with all the heuristics, right? It, it, it like intuitively, yeah. Even. You know, like why is this a good move versus a bad move? Um, right. I, you know, kind of keeping it simple, um, yeah. Even helps. Yeah, and if you were making like a short just just checklist, like that could certainly make the cut um, yeah. as, as like a valid question. Whereas some of the other stuff um, might be a little too too far afield to just always have top uh, of mind. Agree. We'll be right back with more discussion of the classic book, The Amateur's Mind. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. And we are back. Okay, next quote is from page 95. Um, again, reacting to a student's bad move. <laughs> he says, I almost had a heart attack when he played this positional blunder. In many ways, this move is far worse than hanging a piece. Why? Because everyone, even grandmasters, hang pieces from time to time. Hanging a piece is a moment of blindness, but playing a move like this shows a horrible lack of understanding about chess. Clearly, this is far more serious. We stopped and discussed the horrible move. H5, to this day, the sight of H5 raises my blood pressure and makes me cringe with horror. <laughs> that is amazing. It's so, it's so good. It's so much better than just giving it a question mark, you know? Yeah, 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 yeah. That's a, that's a better annotation. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Uh, over and over again, he just, and we stopped the game. <laughs> like, right. I, can't, I can't put up with this crap anymore. Like, no. <laughs> yeah. So good. Uh, that's a good one. Uh, I thought this was good and kind of the helpful, particularly if you're a beginner like me thinking about this, when you're taught all these heuristics, the guy who's accused of being too much that way. He said, though basic laws such as always capture to the center, don't move the same piece twice in the opening, doubled pawns are bad, 
and bishops are better than knights and open positions are often correct. They can also lead to closed-minded bigotry. Again, just like his wording. Like, it's yeah. so good. Closed-minded bigotry that can stunt the growth of just about any student of the game. And I think that's such an important concept. You know, you read, like, logical chess move by move, and, and you're like, oh, okay, well, always put your bishops or your knights before bishops. Always, you know, and you can get stuck in that pattern. So I, I actually think that's a, a pretty good quote for him and a defense to some of his critics. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's gems. I mean, yeah. I don't think his critics, like, I mean, whatever. At this point, I feel like uh, it's kind of settled. I mean, m- most people who read Selman's books will like them. You know, they're they're not perfect, but overall... Uh, there's huge contributions and they're enjoyable to read. Um, and of course, critics might have a point here or there, um, but but the, people should make their own determination. Um, okay, my next quote uh, involves, so he's going through a game with a 1650 student and they make a move to, um, to chase a queen away. Um, and basically this one is about sort of the concept of hope chess. So the the 1650 described a move as saying, like, I don't like his queen being there, so I'll harass her. Um, he says, very interesting. A moment ago, white was intent with keeping his knight on c4. However, black's move upset him. His king is being attacked, and he feels the need to defend. Sadly, his statement about harassing black's queen is not based on accurate calculation. Instead, he's bringing some pieces to the vicinity of the king's side and hoping that something positive happens for him. Never play moves with your fingers crossed. Never hope that he misses your threat or that things will somehow work out. All chess players should get rid of words like maybe and somehow. Clarify what's going on to the best of your ability. Perhaps you won't get it right, but at least you will be creating some good habits. 1650 has gotten lazy and is no longer putting his full energy into the game. So that's an interesting quote because, A, it highlights a thought pattern, again, that a lot of people... Um, experience, but it's also sort of like he's saying, don't do the thing that people accuse him of doing. You know, yeah. he's saying, like, don't let your feelings govern uh, the game. You know, think concretely, uh, evaluate objectively. Um, he's just using words to say it rather than yeah. chess moves. Yeah. Yeah. And and I think it it's a really helpful thing for me because at my level, people blunder all the time. And yeah. so you try to play these cute moves where you're like, uh, you know, they'll probably won't see it and I'll take a piece. And I, it, it creates bad habits. And that, that insight from the book has been helpful to me to say, even though I'm playing someone who I know is going to blunder, just play like they're going to play the best move and your chess will get more solid. I, I thought that was helpful too. On the contrary, uh, Ben, um, he also said you should never say must uh, mm-hmm. for an opposite reason. You know, if, if you say must, then you're not seeing the position uh, accurately either, which I thought was an interesting counterpart to, to that quote. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's so much material in the book that you can probably find, like, you know, little little points that are somewhat at odds, uh, yeah. you know, if you look hard enough. Yeah, no, yeah, but I, I thought they went well together, but it's like, I must do this, then you're not, you're not seeing the truth of the position, I thought. Um, yeah. Okay, my next one's from 87. This was after he let, like, 1100 go on for, like, two paragraphs of what he saw in the position, and, and I think his first word, as I said, was horrible. And then he goes with this incoherent litany really shows why he doesn't do so well in tournaments. (laughs) He he never tried to figure out what he had that his opponent didn't due to this. 
he began to look at the moves in a complete state of ignorance. <laughs> I feel like that's how I played chess so much. I was just like a complete state of ignorance. Like, okay, that's uh, that's that's too too close to home. <laughs> right. Yeah. And uh, yeah. And again, I'm sure many many people feel feel the same way. Um, so I think I've done uh, four, and you know, and obviously we had the same one, but I did pick a couple backups because I knew. Uh, despite the many, many words in this book that it might happen. So for my number five, um, this one also is uh, sort of railing against this idea of hope chess, of like playing something where if your opponent plays the best response, it's not good. But if they, you know, if they walk into something, it's good. So this one is short. He writes, this move is still living in the world of, quote, he won't see it. I have tried hard to break 1700 of this habit, but he still clutches to it like life itself. <laughs> just that, That's good. Yeah, that analogy just made me uh, LOL. Um, can I do one more? Yeah, go for I know it. It's like, okay, so th- this is kind of at the beginning what we were talking about is this book, what book is what rating level. And one thing I love about what you do in the podcast is you do give a rating level and you say if you're under – and most books are like, if you're under 1,500, you shouldn't waste your time. So, like, it puts most books out of my reach, right? Um, but, I, but I thought that this was a really interesting quote because he was writing these articles for chess.com and or writing articles for maybe some other magazine. It's probably pre-chess.com. But he got this hate mail from a person who said, you really shouldn't be giving this material to beginners. Like, they can't even see mates plus one. And so this was his response. He said... He complained that weak players are not able to understand subtle things about minor pieces and weak pawns, adding that they can hardly see a maiden one. I think this is completely untrue. After giving a student the basic mating patterns and strategies, you must begin feeding them advanced concepts. At first, these ideas will not make any sense. Many players will have a vague idea of what you're talking about, but nothing more. However, even a fragmented understanding of these concepts will prove useful, and eventually they will experience a marked increase in strength as those lessons are assimilated by repetition and example. And, and you know, as someone who is a beginner who's, you know, beneath all these books, I, I think it's really helpful, and I think it shines an insight that I think that most people get wrong about people at my stage. One, they forget what we don't know. <laughs> so people right. write write stuff and they assume we know things we don't. And two, I think they underestimate what we're capable of learning and doing. And so I think those two things make materials for beginners. Um, a lot of it's not so great because they, they don't know where we are and they don't know where we're capable of going. Yeah, that really well said. And yeah, that's one thing that in the course of doing this podcast, I've certainly come to appreciate is that you might say like, okay, below the 1400, 1500 level games are just decided by tactics. So you don't need to know anything else, but like, you're still going to be a human sitting at the chessboard needing to make a plan, you know, (laughs) whether, whether or not a tactic ends up deciding the game or not, like you still have to have some sort of thought process at the board. And I think that's something that, that Selman really owned in on. And that's sort of the viewpoint that he's defending, um, and I think it's, it's, I think he was right. Yeah. And I think a lot of people have come on this podcast and said, listen, if you're under 1100, just do tactics and play. And it'd be like me. So I, you know, like I said, I played golf th- my whole life through college. It'd be like me teaching golf and saying, all you need to do is learn how to putt. That's it. Yeah. Just go putt five hours a day. And then, you know, you'll learn golf. That's well, totally false. It's one of the things I like about the dojo is 
you do tactics, you do middle game, you do strategy, you do end games. There's a diet, a balanced diet of everything that you learn. So I think, I don't know, I think a lot of that advice is misguided. That's funny. Uh, you know, being a golf uh, noob, just knowing the basics, I would have thought you're it's starting, more you're like... You're starting, you're playing? You're just starting to play? <laughs> no, I'm more interested in watching. I have zero interest in playing. Um, <laughs> That's <laughs> fair. Like, I, have, I play enough humbling games. Yeah, yeah, um, fair. But I would... My like uh, non-golfer guess would have been that tactics are more like striking. And I think of putting more like the end game or something. Would've... Well, so all most score improvements are short games so putting oh, and chipping even for like you know amateurs i guess yeah, you can only improve your long game so much when, when you think about um you know most of your strokes you two putt right you right. you hit one drive in an ideal hole you hit one approach shot and you have two putts Okay. So if you want to improve your score, yes, you should focus on your short game. But to tell someone they shouldn't go learn how to hit a driver or an iron is ridiculous. To tell someone, yeah, just play this game and just do tactics without having any sort of idea of like the start to end of the game, I think is just is foolish. Okay, interesting. So listeners getting golf lessons as well, but I, <laughs> but I do find um. I do find, you know, drawing parallels between these fields to be of interest, even if I'm not actually trying to get better at, at golf, for example. I think there's a lot of um, connections between the two games, for sure. There's different stages, there's different skills, um, and both are a lot of fun. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think it would drive me crazy. If I <laughs> but, but it I takes too see... much. It's like chess. It's like a classical game. It takes too much time. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Although at least you're outside. Um, and and moving around. Um, so again, we we could give so many quotes about this book, and and like I said, in preparing for the Donaldson and Lakdawalla interviews, and sort of just for fun, once I got sucked in, I read a bunch of his columns. Like, there's so many quotes I could share from that, but I think we'll we'll predominantly try to try to keep this relatively short. I mean, obviously, in closing, if you enjoy good writing, if you like to laugh, definitely read this book. Um, if, if your number one goal is to get better at chess, then like most, like almost all 30 year old chess books, it's probably not the very first choice. Um, in terms of my Selman book rankings, again, it's biased because I haven't, um, I haven't read the complete strategy book. Um, and I haven't read the Benko book, which I'm almost positive would be my favorite based on what people like John Donaldson have said, but out of the three I've read, uh, this, how to reassess your chess and complete endgame course. I enjoyed reading this more than reassess your chess. Uh, complete endgame course, I didn't enjoy reading it as much, but it's just so good for what it is that I would put that number one. Um, so it would be this two, reassess your chess three, and uh, complete endgame course one out of the three I've read. But they're all so good, and the the chess.com columns are great in their own right and free. So they have that going for them as well. Would you? So you've read four of his books now? David? Yeah, yeah. I would rank them in that order and I would put the complete book of chess strategy at the bottom. Okay. Yeah. I think that was his first book. It's so that more like an encyclopedia. Sense. There, You know, there's no real prose to it. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. It's just does here's his personality. A here's does a his pen. Not really. No, it's pretty okay. dry. Oh, yeah. That's. That's just you, a waste. You wouldn't enjoy that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you can have it on your bookshelf, but it's not. I, I forced myself to read it end to end, and it's uh, it was painful. I mean, I I think I was just wow. trying to. Okay. Yeah. That's crazy because I find I'm, this is off the top of my head. I have it in my notes somewhere, but I believe that book sold 189,000 copies according to the uh, 
the New York Times. Um, I mean, it's instructive uh, for sure. Yeah. But yeah. Also, as Cyrus talks about uh, in our interview, I mean, Selman benefited from being around when there were no alternatives. So, and I think that, <laughs> that book helps. in particular, like might've sold a lot when there weren't a lot of other choices. And also John Donaldson was saying it did really well during the pandemic. I think its title might've really resonated. Um, also, we should mention he has, um, he has a novel. Um, yeah. I believe, I believe Jesse briefly mentioned. Yeah, this, that's right. right. I, re- I remember I was like, I got to go find that. I bet it's a really good read. Yeah. It's called biography of a goat. It appears like uh, it appears to um, it didn't make that much of a splash based on the number of Amazon reviews, but it looks totally bananas. I mean, there's it's based on like some hippie in the hey Asbury and there's a bit of chess and a bit of backgammon involved and uh, sexual escapades and so on and so forth. So I, I think I'm going to, David, in 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 view of his passing. I'm going to cross the bridge to full-fledged uh, Selman a file, and uh, I'll have to get around to reading that, too. Well, although... it's, it's, y- y- we're all obligated to buy it on the title alone. Uh... <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. And if any listeners uh, want to discuss that book or another book, I should have mentioned, uh, there is a forum if you want to volunteer, as David has to be a guest co-host that I will link to. Um, you know, the problem is I have plenty of volunteers. What I don't have is a lot of time to churn out these book reviews every month, but I am tentatively planning on doing one next month. I developed a cheat code where I'm going to do one for a book I already read. So um, Smart. That, that makes life Smart. easier. It'll actually be uh, Dr. Nick Vasquez. Um, who's been blogging lately and who I interviewed as an adult improver. And I wrote in my book, I drew a lot um, of insight about the science of learning from this book, Make It Stick. And then when I interviewed Dr. Anique De Bruin, she also gave that as a top recommendation for like the science of learning. And Nick subsequently read that. So we're actually, the next Perpetual Chess book review will be about a book that has nothing to do with chess. We'll try to summarize, make it stick. And But the good news is because that book is shorter and because we've both read it, we should have that out for you in January. Um, but in the meantime, if you want to volunteer, whether it's for autobiography of a goat, the <laughs> Benko biography, which I also have sitting on my shelf and haven't read, or any other chess book that fits your fancy, feel free to reach out. I just don't know when I'll do it. But I, I, am int- I do enjoy getting volunteers, and um, I am feeling slightly more energized to hopefully get back to doing more of these. And David, this is partially, that's because this has been a pleasure. So no, thanks for being so eager to read a 400-something page book. I, absolutely. And for anyone considering it who might be intimidated going on this uh this chess podcast, I don't think you'll be the weakest. I do <laughs> think I lay claim to the weakest chess player to be on this podcast. So uh, you you can come on and have a lot of fun. You should try. It. <laughs> you, you've got plenty of company. I'm not gonna like. Throw, I'm not gonna <laughs> name names, but you know, I've I've interviewed a lot of chess tangential people. So if yeah, you're yeah. if you're Lee Chess 1500, you do just fine in a in a Swiss. Don't don't you worry. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Uh, but yeah, David, this has been a lot of fun. Thanks for yeah, sharing ben. your perspective. Um, do you want people to be able to like message you on Lee Chess or whatever? Or yeah, sure. Write? Yeah, I'm okay. Ch- yeah, I'm Chess Dad, 1979. Always open for a game or or whatever. If you're Chess Dojo, always looking for sparring partners. Uh, so yeah, reach out. I'm also on LinkedIn, uh, David Ham. So. Okay, excellent. Uh, so thanks for taking time from your busy life and yeah. rest in peace to the legend. I am Jeremy Selman. Be sure Indeed. to check out the other. Jeremy Selman related content uh, that that we will have coming out. 
Um, all right. Thanks, David. Yeah, thanks, Ben. Sports Social Podcast Network. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.